0: Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara Ong-Whaley.
1: I'm
2: Sam Kipps, a fourth-year English major uh, interning with the Center for Politics.
0: We're delighted to have joining us in this episode two former Virginia members of Congress, Barbara Comstock, a Republican, and L.F. Payne, a Democrat. Representative Comstock is now a senior advisor for the law and lobbying firm Baker Donaldson. She's also a political commentator And most importantly, she's a scholar here at the Center for Politics, among many of the other esteemed positions she holds. Representative Payne is president of Three Ridges Group here in Charlottesville, Virginia, and is also a member of the University of Virginia's Board of Visitors. We also have joining us in this episode, Alex Theodoridis, who is associate professor of political science and co-director of the University of Massachusetts poll at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. We are here to discuss the findings from a new survey that was jointly conducted by the U.S. Association of Former Members of Congress and the UMass Poll on the perspectives, beliefs, and experiences of former members of Congress. Representative Payne is actually the current president of the U.S. Association of Former Members of Congress, and Representative Comstock is the president-elect. Thank you all so very much for joining us.
1: Thank you very much, Kara and Sam. Uh, it's a real pleasure being here with you today. And it's a special pleasure being with my friend, Barbara Comstock and Professor Alex Theodoridis, uh, who has done a great job with this poll. Yes, thanks for having us.
0: So I want to just dive right into the findings from this new survey. And one of the key takeaways for me um, uh, from the survey, which had responses from over 300 former members of Congress was that 84% of former members responded that they're concerned about the possibility of violence in 2024. Um, 74% of Republicans and 94% of Democrats express their worry about violence. Um, I wonder if you all could talk about why you are so concerned about violence and what we should be doing in this moment to prevent it.
1: Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you, Kara. Uh, violence, uh, it was exhibited on January 6th, and we've all seen what happened at the Capitol. All of us who served in the Capitol were really saddened by that and remain concerned that the forces that made that happen last time are still out there and it could happen again. Um, So there's a great deal of concern about that. And what do we do about it? It would be a good thing for journalists and others as they talk to candidates to get them to agree that whatever the outcome of the election, they will abide by that. And they will will, uh, be the first to uh, cry, uh call out those who are uh, act in any violent ways um we should also make sure that we uh investigate and prosecute those who perpetrate this violence that's very very important and that is being done now
3: yeah i i just um uh, want to add to that that um you know political violence that th- we've had moments of political violence in uh the united states in the past um, our, our recent memory, uh, has it as a, as a fairly, uh, uncommon, uh, thing and it continues to be very rare, but the fact that violence, uh, is something that we're even really talking about, uh, in relation to American politics is problematic at a, at a number of levels. And it goes well beyond election related violence, uh, that we saw on January 6th. To the violent threats that members say they receive, in particular uh, members who serve more recently, um, and especially members who are women or or representatives of color, um, and and we even hear violence and threats of violence being being discussed as reasons why people are afraid to take public stands on certain things, right? Because there's there are groups out there that they know will. You know, threaten them and their families, um, and and undoubtedly it's you know related to, to people choosing um, not to go into into public life, uh, and it's not just elected officials; it's people you know running elections at the local level. So the the specter of violence in American politics, I think, is deeply, deeply troubling. Uh, I know Barbara has has experienced this at a personal level, um, and she's she she can she can talk more about that uh, herself. But the fact that, it, that it's out there is very troubling. And I think the most important thing is that people call out violent rhetoric um, on their own side, that voters and, and elected officials and other elites, um, really, when they hear somebody, especially on their own side, say something um, that, that uh, invokes violence and that, that might inspire violence, uh, that they really call them out.
4: Well, thank you for the opportunity to uh, be with the University of Virginia community again. And I know you are privileged to have uh, my friend, former Congresswoman Liz Cheney, who has spoken and worked so hard on this important issue of political violence. And of course, January 6th being the epitome of that. And I think in that case, you had, you know, Donald Trump giving permission in a way from the very top from, from a president that had never really happened in this country before. And it and it continues to this day because of his election denial and because of his, you know, the words that he gives encouraging those people. But on that very day, you had, you know, the former vice president, Vice President Cheney, call his daughter, Liz, to say, hey, you know, Donald Trump is saying things about you on the on the mall and attacking you. Of course, he also attacked um Mike Pence. And so You know, later on that day, we heard, hang Mike Pence. And we saw that very closely, you know, through the hearings that Liz and her colleagues so skillfully did. We saw that the president's tweets attacking Mike Pence coincided with, you know, chants and attacks, you know, and then the hang Mike Pence. So we know this political violence um, and the rhetoric around it, you know, is a real problem and we need to call it out. And I would, since we're also in Virginia, I would like to compliment and then and, and highlight some good things that are happening, which is in Virginia this year, we had elections and our Democratic uh, chairwoman, I believe, and, and Republican chairman came together after the elections and said, hey, our elections here in Virginia were clean. They were fair, even though they were very close um, with the outcome. You know, the Senate and the House were up for grabs and they both ended up very close in Democrat hands. Republicans obviously would have liked that very close in their hands. But at the end of the day, they all, they came together and it was very civil. People conceded their elections. The governor was very gracious about this, even though he had been very um, hard fighting this. So that's the way it's supposed to work. Unfortunately, you know, when Donald Trump is involved, it doesn't work that way, but it has gone beyond him.
2: So we've been touching quite a bit on uh violent rhetoric and specifically tied to the events of january sixth. Um as we come up on the anniversary of January sixth and attacks on the U.S. Capitol, um, one of the questions on the poll from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, it it asked them how they would describe the events of January sixth. And then in order of the most chosen responses, former Democratic members chose the words insurrection, riot, and coup. Whereas former Republican members, in order of the most popularly chosen responses, they said, riot, protest, and insurrection. Um, So could you just speak to how using different words and narratives to describe the events of January 6th uh, reflects social divisions in the country and it impacts our understanding of those events and the ability to find justice and accountability?
1: Uh, yeah. sure. Thank you, Sam. Um, I I think, you know, words really matter and nobody knows that more than members of Congress who use them all the time. And they understand exactly what they're doing when they make various statements as does the president and others in, in our government. And as it relates to January 6th, um, You know, I think we all know the truth and what the facts are because we have videos and we've looked at it over and over and we've had court cases and we've uh, uh, litigated all this. However, there's a counter-narrative that is uh, out there that basically says this really wasn't an insurrection. We really weren't trying to overthrow the government. This was a protest. And while it was started as peaceful, maybe it got a little out of hand, but it was basically just another peaceful protest. And that's what we uh, have all over this country, and we uh, expect that. And so that then kind of drives what kind of words you use to describe it and the uh, hope, I guess, on the side of the people who don't want it to be seen as an insurrection or overthrowing the government is to find words that make it acceptable. And that's what's um, happening here. But it's a very dangerous thing, as Alex said earlier. I mean, these words do matter, and it matters as it relates to calls for violence. But it also matters in terms of what people at large you aren't familiar with and don't have the ability that the Congress has to look into these things and understand They listen to what their congressman or congresswoman or their representative says, and it's really important how they characterize these these events and that they do it truthfully. And yet that's uh, totally not uh, happening as it relates to January 6th, and it also drives the narrative that the election was unfair, which is totally untrue as well.
4: Well, first of all, I would uh, say I obviously do consider it an insurrection, and I think if you go back and look at, you know, rewind the tapes to January 6th, many Republicans felt that way because they were cowering under their desks and chairs, and I was speaking with uh, former staff who were in there that day, and people were very frightened by it, and you can see the pictures and know that this was something people were very scared at the time and made subsequent statements to that effect and criticized um. Donald Trump. Um, You know, unfortunately, the political realities have led people to continue with the big lie. And that's a problem for the Republican Party. And that's why I think kind of connecting the two things, which, you know, Liz Cheney and others have done now. I I work also with a group called the Society for the Rule of Law, where we have just started to kind of point out from a legal standpoint that, you know, attacking our elections and Undermining our democracy is a bad thing. And, you know, fortunately, the former members of Congress is, you know, actively engaged in supporting our election officials and, and all the people who do run these, our fair elections. We have one of the best systems in the world and we should be uh, celebrating it. So, uh, but because of this continuation for the past, you know, um, almost four years now of uh, the Donald Trump, continuing to say that he won an election that he did not win in 60 cases, including, you know, many judges that he appointed and other Republican supported said, you know, his his claims were false. And so this misinformation, this, you know, violent rhetoric that comes from this is, you know, continues to be a problem. And I think, um, you know, why we speak out in Point out is because we know for many, of, particularly for many Republicans, it's difficult for them to speak out because they are not only fearful politically, as, as Liz Cheney has pointed out, many of them have told her they're fearful of their lives. And we saw that recently with the Speaker's vote, where when Jim Jordan was the head of the Freedom Caucus, someone who was very involved with um, supporting Donald Trump on January 6th, um, there were death threats against the 20 who voted against him. And when people complained about those death threats, one of the supporters of Jim Jordan said, well, if he does vote for him, the death threats will stop. Well, that's not the way it's supposed to work. We're supposed to be able to vote for who, who we want. And so this has gone beyond Donald Trump, where this ecosystem that has been created um, you know, somehow thinks that, you know, kind of this, these threats of violence and things like when General Milley speaks out uh, you know, recently when he spoke out just saying nobody's a king and he wasn't even, you know, when he was, he didn't say directly things about Donald Trump, but obviously it did imply some of the things that uh, then Donald Trump as president asked him to do. And um, I imagine he, you know, death threats probably came his way because of those things. But, you know, kudos to the people who, have you know, had the courage to stand up and do that. And I think more of us who are electeds or former need to do it because election officials, kind of the people who are on the front lines doing the elections and doing our democracy and, you know, or state officials, it's much harder for them to fight this mob if, you, if, if we aren't standing up. And one of the reasons these Republicans on the ground still think, that the election was stolen is because Republican officials aren't telling them that no, what Donald Trump is saying is false. You know, uh, kudos to Chris Christie, who is out there as a presidential candidate, at least saying and yet Even though he is getting attacked for it, he's at least standing on a stage, and you know, in the public square, taking that lie on in a very public way. Because until uh, the party, the Republican Party themselves takes it on i think they're going to continue to lose because they're looking backwards and perpetuating things that in a general election people know are lies and they know it's hurting our democracy and it's hurting our system of government
3: well and and you know if we had a republican caucus uh full of barbara comstocks um you know with that with that courageous voice um you know, again, speaking truth to power on your own side, right? And calling out um, things on your own side that, that, uh, you know, that are problematic. Because again, you know, you, you get people, it, it, this is a vicious cycle, right? And you, and you get, you know, one elite uh, who's just sort of off the rails, like a Donald Trump who says all of these things. And then if everybody else on, on that side said, you know what, this is, this is nonsense, come on, let's move on. Uh, the way a lot of people did, frankly, on the day of January 6th, if you recall. Uh, you had a lot of people uh, who have since sort of returned um, to, the, to, to drinking the Kool-Aid, um, who, who for that moment were saying, you know, I'm out of here, I'm done. Um, like a Lindsey Graham or, you know, if you listen to some of the things that, that even McCarthy or Mitch McConnell said um on that day and then things shifted when they realized that the that the pu- that public opinion sort of wasn't there for them um but the problem again is that they influence public opinion right so that's the vicious cycle part of this i will say these former members um on this issue of you know uh cuz there's this general tendency that lf mentioned that you know if you uh, th- th- there's such a fear of of giving up wins for your side and and letting the other side have wins um, that it gets to the point of of underplaying and downplaying something like January sixth um, and telling people this is just a normal protest or even I think somebody somebody said it was a you know tourist visit um, that that you know there's this there's this real risk of um you know for the sake of trying to Uh, not give the other side this ammunition um, that you really sort of feed this, you know, this misconception and this disinformation that's out there. Um, But I will say these former members in our survey are much less likely to use the term protest, right, than uh, Republican voters. That's 74% for Republican voters, only 54%, which is still too much, um, calling it a protest. Um, But they're much more likely to call it things like an insurrection. Fifty-three uh, percent of the of the former members said it was an insurrection, as com- as compared to only fourteen uh, percent of Republican uh, Republicans in the mass in the body politic. Sixty-seven um, percent were willing to say it's a riot, which again is a negative term, compared to only thirty-four um, percent in the in the uh, in the Republican electorate. And in terms of people supporting uh, the efforts to punish January six participants, seventy-two uh, percent. Uh, So a vast majority of the Republican former members in this sample uh, support those efforts as opposed to only 29 percent of of Republicans in the electorate. And and, you know, that's that you also have to think about, you know, someone like Donald Trump, who has been saying things suggesting he would pardon these people.
0: So a couple of the themes that we have been discussing here are the really disaligned malaligned and incent- incentive structures between campaigning and governance and so there's there's an incentive structure right now to lean into the um into the big lie um to focus on the 50 plus 1 is needed because we have such closely contested elections and such a closely divided electorate and yet that then creates Further dysfunction once we get to governor governing, and this came out in the survey as well. With you know former members of Congress, top of the head terms um, described the situation in Congress as quote unquote dysfunctional, um, uh, and then other most used terms were partisan, polarized, and and divided. We we've talked a little bit already about the rise of retirements. Already we've had more than 40 announcements of, of retirements. Um, some of that is as a result of redistricting. There's, there's a variety of reasons. Others just don't want to, to deal with their, with their parties any longer. Um, and, and that is actually going to likely exacerbate, uh, Congress's ability to function as we go into 2024, Um, And will probably further incentivize extremism in in campaigns um, as we as we see others, you know, more to the right seeking to fill those vacancies. Representative Payne, Representative Constock, both of you were, you know, viewed as more centrist um, members of Congress. And, you know, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the work that you're doing with the Association of Former Members of Congress um, to to try to. Address these problems that we have with dysfunction in Congress, um, and and to try to rebuild trust and civility in our politics.
1: Yeah, I think that's a very very important, in fact, a critical question. And and let, let me uh, well, let me say a couple of things. One, whatever government we have needs to work for the people. And so when you've got uh, Congress being described by former members as dysfunctional, that means we are failing. And question is, why are we failing? It seems to me that we've recently become, not recently, but for some decades now, increasingly, we have been sending people to Congress who um, talk about the fact that you know, once I get there, I am not going to compromise. And yet Congress was set up to work to represent uh, today 330 million people with Uh, 435 representatives and the only way you do that is compromise and the people who are most successful in the congress are those who not only are have strongly held beliefs but they also listen and understand that others need to be accommodated as well and uh, that uh, those folks who do that best are people who are in the middle like barbara comstock and and In my day, it was the people like the Blue Dogs and others who really were centrist, who were pragmatic, who were interested first and foremost of getting things done for their constituents and for the people. And so what we're doing now as former members of Congress is moving about the country, talking to college campuses. We have a Congress to to Campus program where we talk about the government uh, and what it need, what needs to happen in order for it to function well and uh, work better. We do that in teams of Demo- uh, one Democrat and one Republican, and we'll spend two days at a college campus. And it's interesting, the comment we get back most is the surprise of the students that a Democrat and a Republican can sit side by side in front of a class and civilly have a discussion that's productive and useful, and it's just not expected today. And so we've got a big job to do in terms of better educating people to understand what, uh, how our government is supposed to work, the kind of people who we need to have there in order for it to work best, and, uh, and how it is that we can have our institutions embrace that. Uh, the one other thing I'll mention uh, that the former members of Congress organization is working on is working with the Congress itself in their efforts to make the, the Congress work better through their Committee on Modernization and other efforts, and an important part of that is just basic civility and working on ways uh, within the Congress that they can set up um, events and Work at trying to have people know each other better, trust each other, and consequently be able then to perform and uh, effectively legislate
4: well clearly we are seeing dysfunction in Congress when you throw out a speaker um you know after nine months, which is all I think part part and parcel of this big lie and part of what uh, Donald Trump has done to the party, but again it's gone beyond Trump um. And then you have a party that even when you have attacks on Israel, something that Republicans have been big supporters of Israel. Um, and even a majority of Republicans support aid to Ukraine. And now they're trying to put together a deal with, you know, support for Israel, support for Ukraine, support for Taiwan, three things most Republicans support. And then put with that border security. Now, President Biden put the border security piece on there knowing that Republicans want that. Now, these are th- this is something where if you have a functioning Congress, you really should be able to put this deal together because there's something for everybody here but it's also very important for the United States to, you know, to ha- to defeat Russia because Russia is being supported by China. The whole international, you know, world what's going on right now. If we throw in the towel on on Ukraine and on, and on supporting Israel. You know, we are really letting, you know, the accesses of evil, uh, you know, really win on this. And then we also need border security on our borders. So, Demo- you know, I think, I, I certainly hope President Biden will um push through things that maybe some of his Democrats won't like on the border, but do that to get what is very important for the world. And I happen to think it would be good for him politically, but I think more important is something that a functioning Congress and a functioning government needs to do. But also what we do as former members of Congress is speak to young people on these campuses. And I'm still as idealistic as I ever was when I was a student doing what many of your students are doing, being engaged and involved in politics. We're in a 50-50 country where who is involved and who is engaged really makes a difference. Um, I won my first race by 422 votes, and it was because I involved not just Republicans, but independents and open-minded Democrats who would, you know, go out and knock on doors and support me. And even in a blue district that uh, somebody could win if you brought together a coalition like that. So I, I encourage people not to be discouraged by what you see as, you know, negative, you know, maybe on TV and on the, you know, a lot that's negative out there that if you're involved and engaged and find good people you care about, you can make a difference. And even if you lose on one race, you know, get back in there because your skills are valuable. And what you can do as a young person getting involved, whether it's in a presidential race or a delegate race or, you know, local races, makes such a difference. And you need to vote. You got to get everyone you know to vote and get out there. And, um, you know, there's so many places in the world that can't vote. And we have a great system that works. Volunteer to be an election official. So that you understand all these things when people are making up lies, you can explain to them why all these things are, are false that they're saying. A lot of the people who put out those lies have, I I can assure you, Donald Trump never worked the polls as an election worker. Many of us elected officials have worked the polls. I was a precinct captain. I stood out there. I did all those things. So all of these things, you know, I knew to be ridiculous because I had done that work for years, work that of course Donald Trump had never done. So, you know, I think people, really should, you know, feel great about our system of government because, you know, it, it, we get it right if, if everyone's engaged and involved. And I have confidence, again, that even though the next year is going to be very tough, that if young people uh, get involved, that they, you know, inspire others to get engaged and involved, that uh, you really can make a difference and you need to be a uh, lifelong activist in uh on behalf of democracy because it um you know it's we're one generation uh, from losing it as uh Ronald Reagan used to say, uh President Reagan, a favorite of mine. So uh, I think we can take confidence in everybody being engaged is is the best antidote to all of the concerns that we have.
0: Barbara, just really quickly on that point, um, you know, it, it seems especially important to encourage voting in the primary uh, or participating in a caucus. Um, you know, thinking back to 2016, um, you know, the, ultimately the candidates that we ended up with at the presidential level had only received, you know, less than 20 percent of, of the national vote. Right. And then those were the options in the general. So you know, I think really encouraging people to get involved in a primary or a caucus where they can make a difference in candidate selection is particularly important in this moment.
4: Voting in the primaries is so important because so few people do participate. That is how we get some of these more extreme candidates. And so if you are in a state, uh, I mean, Commonwealth of Virginia uh, allows people lacrosse. the um, area you know, if you say you live in a really red area and you don't want to have the worst of the worst, I mean, you know, you can go in as a Democrat or an Independent and vote in the Republican primary, and and you should, because this is still someone who's going to represent you. And likewise, I live now in a pretty blue area. If there's, you know, if there's a contentious race, I look at who's the most reasonable person, I think, so I don't get somebody, you know, extreme. So I think um, that's you know more people need to be involved in that early process because that's where you can really make the difference, particularly when there's a lot of candidates, even in areas that are really red or really blue, say they have four or five candidates, if you get engaged and involved and uh, really um work hard for one candidate, you can, you know do that ground game, get people turned out, you know, find people who want to support your candidate. You can really make a difference. And again, getting involved, um you know, at that earliest stage is is how we get the good candidates. And and this year we had um, you know, people think you can't beat MAGA or you can't beat an incumbent. Um, you know, you can. And uh this year we uh in in, in uh Kentucky, the attorney general um who ran, you know, the guy who ran for attorney general beat an a MAGA opponent uh for in the primary and he then he won his race while the MAGA Republican candidate for governor lost his race so here you know Kentucky pretty red state they thought being MAGA was going to be great well the non-MAGA Republican is who won and of course in Georgia we know with Governor Kemp and Brad Raffensperger who both stood up to Donald Trump in 2020 they both got you know primaries um from you know Donald Trump candidates who were endorsed by Trump and then both of them um defeated those candidates soundly. And then they went on to win their elections by large margins while Trump-supported candidates continued to lose not only in 2020, but in 2022 with Herschel Walker. Again, while, you know, uh, Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger, you know, romped easily to victory, Herschel Walker, supported by Trump, went down to defeat. So, you know, it, oftentimes people don't get involved and don't get involved in the primaries or don't think they can run in a race, even in a in a in a tough area. I mean, Some areas are too tough. If you're a Democrat running in a plus 50 red district, I wouldn't encourage you to run. But, but you still can get involved in primaries and uh, be be active and engaged. And it really does make a big difference.
2: Going back to something that you had said, Alex, talking about the disparity between former Republican members of Congress and how they responded to many of the questions on this poll uh, versus Republicans in the voting population. Um, I'd love to go a little bit deeper on that for a specific question. Um, And that was with, it was about 64% of former Republican members of Congress Said they somewhat or strongly agree that Trump's claims that he won the 2020 election threaten American democracy. In contrast, Republicans sampled among the voting population uh, were just were at just 18 percent for somewhat agree or strongly agree. Um, why do you think there's such a large disparity between the former uh, Republican members of Congress of Congress and their views on Trump's election claims? as a threat to democracy versus republicans of the voting population and what does this also tell us about the 2024 election
3: yeah i mean i think that that you know s- some of this and 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 i you know the, that that disparity is is particularly striking right because um you know that's not that's that's being willing to say something above and beyond just that the the election was legitimate it's saying that you know not only was it legitimate but that It's damaging to our democracy, which I, which I believe it is. um, You know, for a candidate for the top office to be unwilling to accept the results of an election, and actually, as we know, make efforts to, um, you know, (laughs) to steal an election, essentially, um, on the basis of those claims, which you know, by all accounts, even the people closest to him did not really believe. Um, you know, so that that disparity between voters and And former members is striking, Um, but you know I think it also reflects a disparity between former members and current uh, Republican elites. I mean, how how many um, people who are either in elective office or running for elective office, as as Barbara has mentioned on the uh, Republican side, are would would be willing to make a statement like you know Donald Trump's efforts uh, to claim he won the election? threaten democracy uh the 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 numbers are very small um and this gets back to the the vicious cycle that i was um that i was talking about which is that you know one of the things we we know um more than almost anything else that there's tremendous amount of evidence for is that on a lot of things voters take cues from elites The, the voices of elites matter um and if if elites that is elected officials and people in the media um you know are are more willing to stand up and say that this is dangerous, that we shouldn't do this. Um, then I, you you would have fewer members of the public um, saying it and and you know th- that's the problem. You end up in this vicious cycle where elites are afraid of the their you know uh, primary electorate and they don't want to say anything and they think, you know what? I'll just try and let this pass and and not sacrifice my political career for it. Um, but that feeds into this public perception, you know, which then again, loops back around and, and puts pressure on elites. And so, so when I, when I say elites, I just loosely mean kind of, you know, people who are, you know, elected officials, but, but I mean, I I include, uh, you know, I include these former members as elites, right? These are people that in this, through this survey can have a real voice. Um, and, and that's why one of, this is one of the things that we're, that we're hoping gets out there in addition to some of these um you know five alarm fires regarding the state of congress and the state of american politics and threats of violence and things like that um you know just the fact that there there's a huge number of you know real dyed-in-the-wool conservative republicans out there who do not who have not been drinking this kool-aid they've largely been marginalized within the party um and in some cases totally pushed out of the party um but but they're out there and i think it helps voters who might, you know, be a little bit skeptical um, of some of these claims of fraud, et cetera, to, uh, you know, to hear to hear that they're not alone and that these that these voices are out there, um, and so you know that's that's what what I would emphasize there. Um, I think that it does make a difference when people like Barbara Comstock speak and people like Liz Cheney speak and people like Adam Kinzinger speak. Um, and, and Chris Christie, um, you know, although he's been sort of all over the place, uh, th- you know, over the years, um, you know, people hearing that, even though he they get booed and, you know, they might get forced out of office that that those sorts of uh, shows of courage can really matter in, um, you know, I think I think helping to save the Republican Party, honestly, um, which in a two party democracy is tantamount to saving American democracy, you know, we need to have two functioning, um, effective parties. Uh, and I think that we've run into some trouble on one in one of them.
1: Yeah. And let me just add, I think Sam's uh, point is a good one, a very good one. And that is the uh, Republican former members, uh, are folks who have served years in the Congress. They are very knowledgeable. Uh, they understand the facts. And when you have a poll like this with them saying something that's so different from what the uh, average Republican and even the current members of uh, Republican members of Congress are saying, it's very significant. And so we are pushing this out to have more and more people understand this and think about the fact that these very knowledgeable uh, former members of Congress who've uh, served for years uh, in the Congress. I have a very different take on the outcome of the last election. They say that Biden won that election. And further, they say that denying that is hurting our country and hurting our democracy. And um, we very much agree with that. And we very much want people to understand that. And we think it will be helpful as people think about 2024 and finding candidates who are supportive of our democracy. And so um, with that, let me end and thank you all for including uh, us, the former members of Congress, as part of your podcast. And congratulations to you and the University of Virginia and Center for Politics for the great work that uh, that you all do. Thank you.
0: Thank you all so much. We are, we are so grateful for, for your service to the public and the broader good and, and for speaking out and doing this really important work. Um, uh, for public education, but also with, with former members and current members of Congress. Listeners, you can find links to the new survey from UMass and the U.S. Association of Former Members of Congress in the episode notes. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong-Whaley. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on social media at Center number 4 Politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time.
2: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.